60 years ago tomorrow. Thank you. 60 years ago tomorrow, I began my ministry. I consider this my most important sermon. Looking back, my greatest joy is what I gave away. My greatest lesson, the importance of giving and balance. Let's talk about both. The heart of our faith is a cross, and a cross is I crossed out. It's not about what you took, it's about what you left. Not about what you got, it's about what you gave. Not about your glory, but his. Not about your kingdom, but his. For the disciples, the Great Commission was mission impossible. It was geographically impossible because the world hadn't even been discovered yet. It was physically impossible, they had no way to go. Numerically, too few. Financially, no money. Socially, there were the discards and rejects and influence flows downhill. Who would listen to them? It was illegally against the, the law to speak or teach in the name of Jesus would be soon, and they were being stake, would be burned at the stake in the Roman Empire. So they did what they could and do and had that prayer meeting. On the day of Pentecost, God sent the world to them, and world evangelism began. Today in America, it's Pentecost again. In the Houston Independent School District, 5% of the population under 5 are Anglo. Getting out of the Bible Belt and send North America is the right thing to do. My son-in-law pastors a great church on the home mission field in Omaha. My grandson is planting a church in Elkhorn, Nebraska, as we speak. America is the gospel breadbasket of the world. Lose it here and lose it everywhere. In 1967, the director of our association came to see me and told me about 67 inner-city ethnic area churches that would not survive two years. White flight had taken its toll. Too often when the mission field moves in, the missionaries move out. 67 buildings, land, equipment, and only 20 or 30 people in each one, strategically loaded, located in the great ethnic-filled inner cities of America in Houston, tugged at my heart. I called a meeting of the 67 pastors and asked, what do you need? The answer was predictable, money and people. We immediately began pouring money and people into them. A third box was added to our offering envelopes, building, budget, and local missions. 67 of our adult departments each adopted one of those missions and began working in them, supporting them and praying with them. Every Sunday, I gave two invitations, join the church and leave the church. <laughs> Get out and work in those missions. And 440 of them did. About 60 of those churches survived and thrived. Many of them planted churches themselves. Today, the total number approaches 100 as Pastor Greg Mott continues the program. And on any given Sunday, there are more in all those churches and the ones they started than in the mother church. Our church did not grow that much during that time, but the kingdom doubled as far as we knew. It's not about your kingdom, it's about his. Let me tell you about two of those churches. The Westview Mission Center had 30 people. Today we have a Laotian congregation there, an Anglo, a Korean, and a Hispanic, and the number is approaching 400. The result? Well, let me tell you one more. Spring Brook 
apartment ministry. Out of that ministry in nine years, as Stan Felder led them, came 14 young men and women that were saved, called of God to go into the ministry, went to Southern Baptist universities and seminaries, got ordained, and went into ministry. One of them, John Lapos, out of Springbrook Apartment Ministry, was the first IMB underground missionary into China. Today he serves in Laos. The result, God built a mission church at First Baptist Houston. 50 mission trips a year they now take. When I retired, the church gave me three scrapbooks with 800 names that had gone into full-time Christian ministry. Among them, Kurt Dodd, the pastor of the largest, second largest church on the home mission field. Uh, Charlie Jones, the pastor of the largest Southern Baptist church in Colorado. Tim Bassanio, my own son, across the world preaching on several networks with a real rocking program at, late at night, winning kids to Christ. David Stockwell, international crusade evangelist. Beth Moore, internationally known Bible teacher. Johnny Derwin, professor of uh, youth ministry at Southwestern. Doyle Braden, DOM in Los Angeles. Stan Felder, former DOM out in Colorado. Jerry Esri, director of church planning and strategy for the Tennessee Baptist Convention. Richard Blake, executive director of the EBC, European Baptist Convention. Richard Land, director of our own Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Jay Martin, former mission evangelist, uh, women's evangelism strategy, strategist for the North American Mission Board. A giving church, a missional church, a selfless church, a 638 Luke church. 60 years later, it is the greatest joy of my ministry. You're leaving the security of the Bible Belt, leaving your comfort zone, leaving your glory for His, your kingdom for His. I know not where you go, but this I know. Great will be your joy. Let's talk about balance. It's tough enough in the South. Only one in 10 in the ministry make it all the way to age 65. 1,500 men quit the ministry in all denominations every month. Denny Autry, dean of our Southwestern campus in Houston, told me recently that only one out of five seminary graduates are still in ministry at age uh, eight years later. It's tough down here. It's going to be tougher in the north. I want you to make it. We all want you to make it. He wants you to make it. Faithful to the end. That's why I write my books for preachers. That's why we pray for you. That's why we have this conference. If I were to reduce everything I've observed and documented about men whose ministry are faithful to the end to once into one word, that word would be balance. Let's talk about five or six examples. Number one, balance in hard work and prayer. Doing it myself means trusting myself. Prayer means trusting him. Jesus wants us to work in his kingdom, not play and work. The greatest gift my dad left me, the greatest legacy was the value of hard work. I came in from playing in dance, dance bands in high school at night at 1, 2 in the morning. But every Sunday morning, those chicks came out of that hatchery and I had to be at work at 4 o'clock. Tuesday and Friday after school, no matter what I was doing, I had to be there at school, at work at 3 to unload those 100-pound Purina feed sacks. Today I have learned more and more the balance uh, that, under, that, in, that means work means I do it and prayer means he does it. And it's a balance of both. 
And so now I spend one hour each morning in prayer, every morning, no exceptions. I've learned when I put him first, he puts me first. When I put his kingdom first, he puts my agenda first. Recently I had prayed for, tried for weeks to get appointments in Houston with six different people, no, no avail. I spent two hours in prayer one morning. I said, I'm going to walk into their office and go see them. Five of the six were walking into their office, and I talked to them in the lobby as I got there. Put him first, he puts you first. Early morning prayer is critical. Edward Payson prayed until there were knees, holes, grooves in the floor made by his knees. David Brainerd prayed, missionary to the Indians in Arizona and Utah, until the snow melted beneath him. Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, and men hung on to the columns of the church to sleep from, keep from sliding into hell. But he'd get in that baptistry and drain the water and crawl up in that old church and get on his face and pray 12 to 14 hours before he preached. Prayer and ministry, hard work, need a good balance. Number two, balance in family and ministry. Lose it here and lose it all. I know many men who lost their church because they got a divorce. I never knew one who got a divorce because he lost his church. Cut a hole in the door of your office where everybody can see what's inside there. Put her picture on your desk. Take the phone off the hook when you go at home. Put her first. That's critical. That'll be one of your biggest challenges. I told my church one Sunday about my great balance, my great difficulty and priorities and time for the family. I said, I've made a decision, church. From now on, I, I may miss some staff meetings, may not make every hospital call, but I will keep every date night with my wife, go to every little league game of my boys and every school play and recital my daughter, and they stood to their f- feet and cheered. That's what they want. Balance in ministry and family. Balance in dream and reality. Dream and reality. Pastors quit the ministry for four reasons. Morals, money, conflict over leadership, and discouragement. A great dream. We get to 55 or 60. I'm not going to build a mega church. It isn't going to happen. We discourage, get discouraged and quit. Jimmy Swaggart was a good friend of mine and still is. I broke, my heart broke. He used to preach in two or 300,000 people all over the world. Powerful preacher in great stadiums. I have another friend named Jimmy Van Doren. He pastored First Baptist Church, Somerville, Texas. Only 1,600 people. He stayed 21 years. He visited and witnessed to everybody personally in that town four different times. Which Jimmy is going to hear the well done? Don't give up because your place is small and you have a vision for the great thing. Faithfulness is not in numbers. Loyalty and success and the blessing of God making it what's important is your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Humility and integrity and being God's man. And integrity means that you do what people assume a man of God does when nobody's watching and no one's taking notes. Next thing I want to talk to you about, get my ducks in a row here. I think I skipped the page. Balance in leadership. Let's talk about balance in leadership. Leadership must be earned by the pastor, but it must be granted by the congregation. The function of leadership is to lead, and the purpose of leadership is to get things done. Everybody seems to understand that, but Southern Baptists. 95% of the students I teach at our Southwestern Extension are not 
going into the, to establish churches. Ask them why. They say, I'm not going to fight the music battle. I'm not going to fight the deacon battle. You earn your leadership in the very same way the deacon earns his leadership. And I want you to understand clearly that shared leadership is the New Testament way. Don't throw it all out and go to auto rule where autocratic elder rule where one or two men have all the leadership. It doesn't matter what you call them, deacons, elders, the presbytery, the session, the trustees, but have people who help you lead. It is important to do so. It is balanced. You read the New Testament and very, very often you find the, the leadership, the people helping the pastor lead the church. Acts 1, the church acted congregationally. It's six times in Acts 1. Who would be their deacons? Acts, um, who would be the 12th apostle after Judas committed suicide? In Acts 6, they, the, the church collectively made the decision. Who would be the deacons? In Acts 10, can any man forbid water? We receive the Holy, they receive the Holy Spirit as well as we. The decision was made collectively. Who would be admitted to the fellowship? The Matthew 18 model of church discipline, Jesus made it clear the church acts collectively. Who would be dismissed from the fellowship? But the biggie is Acts chapter 15. The greatest decision made in the New Testament was the issue of Gentile circumcision. Read it. Thirteen times it says, and the church, and the multitude, and all the people. The people made that decision collectively. But the curse of little churches is wanting to vote on everything. The curse of big churches is not voting on anything. If you do that, you forfeit buy-in from the people, support from the people, financial support for the people, work from the people. And besides that, you forfeit wisdom. You ain't that smart. You got good people in your church. Listen to them. Participatory leadership is critical. But that's New Testament. It's biblical. But earn your leadership and the people will grant it. I tell my students, when you have to start telling your, your church, I'm the pastor, you no longer are. You forfeit it. That's not the way you get it. You earn it. Number six. Number five, balance in personality. Balance in personality and spirit in your leadership. Adrian Rogers was tough as nails and immovable as the rock of Gibraltar. But Adrian Rogers, I listen to him every day, those old sermons. In his voice, in his preaching, there's always a lilt, there's a love, there's a warmth, a tender balance. One day Jesus Christ covered a tender woman, I believe, of an embarrassed woman tenderly, caught in adultery with his own coat perhaps. The next day, and lovingly forgave her, the next day he wove a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. Gentle, loving, but tough. Balance in your character and your personality. Number six, balance in ministry style. Seeker-friendly, but solid. Remember, the methods change, but the message never do. A woman said to me, I want to go back to the old music like it was. I said, how far back? 300 years ago, we were singing Gregorian chants. I don't think you want to go back that far. In America, the truth is, we are losing it. Listen very carefully. If you're going to build a church tomorrow, you've got to reach young adults today and young people today. And if you're going to reach them, you've got to speak their language. And their language is electronics and music. If I'm going to go to Africa, I don't make the Africans learn to speak English. I don't change the message. But I put the language in Swahili. I put the message in, Leo, in um, Igbo, Hausa, Yoruba. I learn to speak their language. And their language is their music. Somebody said to me, well, 
this new music is immoral. It's bad music. I don't like it. Bulletin. There ain't no bad music. What is music? Music is nothing but the vibration of air through a tube, i.e., your throat or a flute or a clarinet or a trombone, or the vibration of air caused by the movement of a string, whether it be a piano, guitar, bass, or what it is. That's what music is. Music is not immoral or moral. What is different is the words. That's what's critical. Jesus settled that issue one time when the woman at the well in John 4 wanted to make a debate about who's the best, where's the best way to worship. How, Samaritan worship like on Mount Gerizim or Jewish worship like you guys worship down in Jerusalem. Jesus didn't even, didn't even answer a question. He said, they that worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. The only issue is this. Are you, is, you, is it biblical and is it from the heart? I don't care what floats your boat or wiggles your string. If it's from the heart and it's based on the Word of God, God accepts it and it's good music. Preach and sing the new music. Seeker-friendly simply means you have the good sense to remove every barrier that keeps people from coming to hear the gospel. The, 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 the parking lot's got boulders and tree stumps on it. Get a bulldozer and get it out of the way so people can get to church. They can't see, get more lights. They can't hear, buy a new sound system. The seats are hard, put some cushions. If you get out of church too late to get to the cafeteria, go get some loaves and fishes. <laughs> That's seeker-friendly. And by the way, I think I remember hearing something about a ladder on the side of a house and somebody cutting a hole in the roof to get the people to Jesus. That's seeker-friendly. But don't change the message. Here's the balance. New methods, new, me new means, old message. Paul said, I become all things to all means that I might by all men, that I might by all means, anything goes, win some to Jesus Christ. But he also said, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And we are changing the message. How long since I've heard a sermon on what is a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The unpardonable sin, the great white throne judgment, or hell. Evangelistic preaching is not going on. Stewardship preaching. The number two theme of the New Testament is your relationship to your money. It's a great indicator of your love for Jesus Christ. 2,800 verses in the Bible talk about your relationship to your money. It's the number one theme of the parables. And I'm not hearing enough doctrine these days. If you're not teaching doctrine to your people, it'll come back and bite you. In 10 or 15 years, you're going to have heresy invade your church. And I'm not seeing clear-cut invitations. I don't care whether you say, come forward, meet me at the kiosk, or go to the welcome room. It doesn't matter where you get saved geographically in the church. But make it clear, come to Jesus and get born again right now, or you're going to perish. Be dead clear. Don't change the message. A good balance between seeker-friendly and the old Word of God. You put a no-holes-barred, in-your-face, old-time religion, gospel-preaching sermon in a seeker-friendly atmosphere from Boston to Baltimore, from Minnesota to Maryland, from New England to New York, you're going to build a church north of the Mason Dixon. Number five, seven, balance in doctrine. Every preacher, every speaker in New Orleans of the convention referenced uh, a Calvinism. 
I'm not a Calvinist, but I have deep respect for those who are. Balance. The last thing we need is another debate to get us off focus of winning the world of Jesus Christ. We need to respect each other and let it go and get after souls. Balance is always essential. Faith and works, deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. On the Mount of Temptation, Satan said to him, jump down and prove that you're the Son of God because it is written, his angels will bear thee up lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said, it is also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Balance in doctrine. A lot of things I can't figure out about Calvinism. A lot of other issues. But I'll tell you one thing, I guess as long as God's God, and I'm me, I'll just have to give him credit for knowing some things I don't know. And I'm willing to leave it there. But this I do know. The Great Commission has not been wrote, revoked. The time is short. Our world is crumbling. Name one institution, one entity in American life, finance, home, government, morality, entertainment, that's not deteriorating and almost gone. We're about to lose a whole generation. Do you know that one out of, do you know that in the 18 to 28 age group, Southern Baptists baptized only one convert out of a thousand in the last 10, uh, last year. We're losing, there's no tomorrow for our kids and grandkids. We're losing it and we're losing it bad. Baptisms continue to go down. We must get out there and not argue about anything but winning people to Christ. If my grandchildren are trapped in a burning house, I'm not going to stand on the sidewalk and debate the physics of spontaneous combustion. I'm rushing in the fire and going to save those kids. Number eight, in conclusion. Best two words of any sermon, in conclusion. <laughs> Number eight, I urge you to have balance in between the problem and the potential, the appearance and the vision, what it is and what it can become. Don't ever let the circumstances get you down. The only issue in every opportunity is onefold. What can it become? Dell City, First Southern, I pastored there. In the 60s, we had 1,800 young adults in church. 1969, the First Baptist Church of Houston voted to disband. They had 2,300 seats and 2,000, 2000 were empty. They asked me to come. I came for one reason, vision, what it could be. They have mops and buckets stored in the baptistry. Hadn't baptized anybody in, eight, in about 14 months. Wednesday night, they had 60 people, 60 old gray heads sitting there singing. <laughs> Next door to that old downtown church was Sweeney's Jewelry Store. It was Christmas week. I was looking the church over, snuck in on Wednesday night. I went over to the jewelry store. It was Christmas. They had sparkling lights and Christmas trees and, and sparkling jingle bell music and girls in little red Santa Claus outfits handing out canes, can, can, candy canes. It was wonderful. I went back to the church. They were still singing. I went looked at the jewelry store. I looked at the church. I thought about it, so help me. If they had both given an invitation, I'd have joined the jewelry store. <laughs> Is that dead? Is that alive? But I went there for one reason and one reason only. First Baptist Houston is the space capital of the world, the oil capital, the medi medical capital. 
A church with the name first on it had a built-in leg up. We had citywide influence. No matter how big we were, we could pump influence. We could pump life to those other churches. We started working with them. We started helping them. And when I retired, the church gave me a scrapbook with the names of 800 men and women that went into full-time ministry because God was faithful. I saw a vision. I saw what could happen. I'll tell you two quick stories. I'll be through. I went to Nigeria to preach a crusade with all the Baptist churches in Lagos. World capital landed. The pilot on the intercom said, now the terminal is closed, 7 o'clock. He said, there will be hundreds of young African little boys and girls around the plane. They'll carry your luggage if you want to. Give them a quarter, give them 50 cents. We got off in the middle of the crowd. They were there, half-naked little children, hundreds of them. I got my suitcase. I felt something in the crowd wet, wet on my foot. I looked down. A little eight-year-old boy was tinkling on my foot. Can you say tinkling in a Baptist church? Is that okay? All right. I reached down and patted him on the head. I said, what's your name, little fella? He said, my name is Israel. They speak good English over there. I said, they told me where it was. I said, Israel, see those lights? That's a big stadium. I'm going to be preaching about Jesus tomorrow night and every night. Will you come? He said, I'll be there. He came. That little boy's name is Israel Akanji. He is today the president of the Nigerian Baptist Convention. It's all about potential. All about what can happen. 1967, on a given morning, I got in my entire staff. We'd planned it for two weeks. We had a breakfast, met at church at 8, and we prayed. And 18 of us went out to knock on every one of the hundreds of doors in Dell City and witness for Christ. One problem, it was 10 below zero. Two foot of snow had happened that night. I still have a frozen dead toe on my right foot to show for it. But we went. But on that very same day, the coldest game in the history of the NFL was played. The Green Bay Packers were playing the Dallas Cowboys for the championship of the NFL before they even had Super Bowls. There were 70,000 people. It was 47 below zero chill factor. There was five seconds to go. There were five seconds to go. The Packers were behind. Four points. Field goal wouldn't do any good. Bart Starr lined up the team, and hundreds and thousands of those 70,000 fans stood to their feet. They thought those old wooden bleachers were going to break. They began to pound, go, 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 go. Bart Starr called his own number. The Packers blew those Cowboys off the line, ran in, and made the touchdown and won the game. I don't know if it is this way, but if it is, I believe all the saints of God from the Old Testament to the last soul that went there, are looking down from heaven and saying, Southern Baptist, go. Nam, go. Send, North America, go. Young church planters, go, 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 go.